You are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is produced by Crawlspace Media. Welcome back to True Crime Twins. I'm Chloe. Hey, it's Melina. Thanks for listening. How's it going, Chloe? I am doing very well. Just thinking about what we're going to talk about today, getting excited. How are you? I feel the same way. Um, I feel like, I don't want to say like I'm an expert on this case, but it's definitely one that I've been obsessed with for a very long time. So I think it'll be very interesting to talk about it. And we're not just talking about one case here. We're going to do a bit of a comparative analysis, if you will. Our focus today is home invasion murders. We're going to be spotlighting two very notable cases that received national and international attention. One was subject of a best-selling book in cold blood one happened back in 2007 in cheshire connecticut we're going to discuss the similarities between the two crimes and between the offenders and discuss it under a sociological and psychological lens yes and these stories are just wild as they are even without our you know great analysis that we will be doing it's just um, a very interesting story to listen to and to sort of think about because it's one of those things that just seem inhuman you know what these people did so i guess that's like the part of psychology that i'm interested in is just the events that i can't really make sense of it's always interesting to discuss extreme outliers and in cases like these where it's the darkest types of people it can be disturbing to discuss but it's fascinating nonetheless because they are outliers and on the end of very extreme spectrum of callousness and violence right so let's just jump right in the first case we're going to talk about is the 2007 home invasion of cheshire connecticut the victims were the pettit family it's a family of four a father bill pettit wife jennifer hawk pettit and two children haley who i believe was 17 and michaela who i believe was 11 so they were victimized by two ex-cons one, Joshua Komisaryevsky, who I believe was just like in his 20s, and then Stephen Hayes, who was in his 40s. They like met in a halfway house. So they broke into the Pettit home, which was on a very, very fancy kind of cul-de-sac area. Cheshire is a pretty wealthy area, and they have a nice house. Is that Bill Pettit? It's actually Dr. Pettit, and, you know, they live with tons of luxuries, Yes, Bill was a, well, he is, but at the time he was 50 years old and worked as an endocrinologist. His wife, Jennifer, was a school nurse at Cheshire, at Cheshire Academy. They met working together, I think, when she was doing her rotations or when he was doing the rotations at a children's hospital. And she taught him how to do something, you know, and take the blood pressure properly or something like that. So they had a cute little story. So Haley, the 17-year-old, was planning on attending Dartmouth. She it was all committed. She was all set. The daughters worked together to raise money for multiple sclerosis, um, of which Jennifer suffered. A very close-knit, uh, affluent family. So the planning of the crime started on July 22nd. Joshua Komisarjewski noticed Jennifer and Michaela, the 11-year-old, at the Stop and Shop in Cheshire. He liked the way that the 11-year-old looked, so he followed mother and daughter home saw that they had a large house in a fancy neighborhood. He decided he wanted to rob the family and, you know, I'm sure had other things in mind, but this is all he's willing to 
own up to. And he informed his friend Stephen Hayes of his plan. These two, as Melina, you just said, met in a halfway house. The two were both uh, recently released from prison and on parole. Felons. They were um, burglars, um, I guess. I don't know if they actually like robbed like a gas station or anything. So they're not robbers, but they're definitely burglarized homes. Um, both had drug histories. Um, Joshua Komisarevsky, who's the one that followed him, followed um, the mom and daughter home. Obviously, that's menacing enough as it is. But in his previous crimes, he was known to sort of love the thrill of going sneaking into somebody's home, knowing that the people who lived there were sleeping. So this is a very sick, calculated person. And I think that it's just important to note that because I think that the two cons, the two perps had similarities in sophistication and leadership. Absolutely. And we'll delve deeper into sort of the level of sophistication, the intelligence level, the uh, psychopathic or non-psychopathic traits that these people exhibit later on. The aggravator and the follower. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to see in both of these cases a dynamic where there's two perpetrators where the dynamics and the psychopathologies are quite similar. It's stunning enough. The relationships between the two. Yes. So it's... uh, it, it stood out to us enough to make a special episode about it. So these two ex-cons entered the Pettit home early morning, July 23rd. They went in through an unlocked basement door. Once inside, they crept up the front stairs to the first floor where they found Bill sleeping on the couch. Jennifer and her daughter, Michaela, were, I believe, sleeping together in Jennifer's bed upstairs. They were watching Army Wives and Haley, 17-year-old Haley, was asleep in her bed. The two had found a baseball bat on the property and proceeded to bludgeon Dr. Pettit in the head while he slept. Very vicious beating. I think that they were like, okay, great, we're encountering the man of the house, the one that poses the most threat to us. Because I don't even know if they had that much of, you know, they all they knew was that the mom and daughter lived there. I don't know if they really knew how many people were truly in the house, but they just happened upon the man of the house that could most likely take him on or, um, you know, stop the whole crime. So they tied Dr. Pettit to a pole in the basement, dragged him down the steps, like beaten to a pulp. They went upstairs and located the women of the house and tied them to their respective beds, separating mother and daughter you know, put tying them all to their own beds. They ransacked the home and they did not find as much money or goods as they had anticipated. So the new plan of action was to get cash. So they decided that Stephen Hayes would abduct the mother and take her to a local bank. She withdrew $15,000 in cash and gave the money to Stephen Hayes. Let's just back up a little bit. So they decided to do this plan when they found out that she had $15,000 in a line of checking and it was just a complete deviation of the plan you know they thought they would find a safe they thought they would find jewelry cash whatever so the plan is starting to take a really dark swift turn like they're actually physically making a woman go to the bank and like risk her telling them what was going on which she did but also something happened while the two of them were gone doing this errand when Joshua Komisardevsky had charge of the pet at home. Yeah, so he's alone with the two daughters and with the father who are all tied up. And he sexually assaulted 11-year-old Michaela and took photographs of her on his phone. 
he intended to send the pictures to Stephen to show Jennifer if she wasn't cooperating to intimidate her. But that I don't think ever was necessary. No, it's, I think that a big part of this motive to do this was because of his sexual preoccupation with this 11 year old child right and i think he framed it to police and to steven as more uh financially motivated to make it something that was a little bit more uh digestible yeah because he I, I think that most people even if they're pedophiles they're aware that that's not acceptable yes <laughs> most absolutely. people and they and if you listen to como sarjeski's confession tape um he downplays a lot of those details significantly. He knows that, uh. it's, that it's not acceptable. So there were no complaints about the mother's conduct when she was out with Hayes uh, withdrawing the money. So that never really came into play. Jennifer was docile. She said to the bank teller that uh, she was being held hostage, that her family was being held hostage at home. She did say that they were being treated well, but she needed to get that money. The bank teller called the police as soon as they left you can actually see the surveillance footage of jennifer speaking to the teller and walking out it's haunting yeah so like chloe said the teller called the police but this is you know a police department that probably has never dealt with more than petty crimes even if that it's a very quiet area like nothing like this ever happens you know they respond to the call and they i think they they arrive after jennifer and steven obviously got there they got there back to the house first before the police came but basically as soon as they returned to the house that's when all of everything went down yeah everything escalated very quickly they discovered that dr pettit had escaped they went to check the basement he had escaped his confines and had rolled across his yard all the way to his neighbor's house because i i don't know if it was because he couldn't stand or if it no, was i think his i think his um ankles were still bound okay so he was like hopping and rolling and screaming so his neighbor calls the police so this is the second 911 call that is received in regards to this home invasion um so the police arrive but they don't immediately go inside because it's a you know hostage situation i think that i think that in certain cases police officers are told to sort of hold back because they don't know what the situation is in there at all so they kind of need to wait it out and like i guess at excruciatingly slow pace set up their perimeter while they await other instructions like i think they were specifically instructed not to intervene just yet because they didn't know maybe they were going to call like you know try to make contact with the perpetrators before even attempting that they need to gauge the situation for their own safety so they didn't go in but while they were outside bill pettit escapes Stephen Hayes then takes it upon himself to rape Jennifer Hawk Pettit, the mother. And then shortly after that, for we don't really know exactly why, like there's different, the two perps tell different stories about why they did the next couple of things. But so Stephen rapes Jennifer and then strangles her to death. And then it's unclear which ones did which, but in the next minutes, while the daughters are still tied in their beds and Jennifer is dead on the floor in the living room downstairs. And the police are out in the bushes. They pour gasoline all over the house, including onto their bodies, including the girls that are still alive. Um, They close the girls' bedroom doors. Um, One of them lights a match. And the house, I think, is just almost immediately in flames. And they try to escape. They run out, get into a car and, you know, uh, one of their cars, yeah, Bill Pettit's car, and they crash into 
uh, roadblock set up with cruisers with their very carefully established perimeter. And they are immediately apprehended and taken in and separated and interviewed and arrested. Shocking, horrific crime, one that motivated the community of Cheshire to arm up pretty quickly. I think gun sales went through the roof. Security systems. It, it terrified the town, and I'm sure people that are listening to these details, you know, I, I've heard these details many times. I've and we're read, desensitized. But I'm not even desensitized because hearing you talk about it, even now, m- makes me sick. It's a horrible case. It's it's really disturbing, and it's definitely one that I've had many nightmares about, and definitely a case that I've had to take breaks from because... Like Chloe described Joshua Komisarevsky's confession. They both made a confession immediately after they were arrested. And, you know, they were slightly different. But when you're listening to Joshua Komisarevsky's, that's like available, I think, on YouTube or another platform. My I, I looked in the mirror after I listened to him and my entire face was just contorted with like disgust. It's it's absolutely vile. And you're right. I'm not really desensitized, but I just feel like I'm way more desensitized compared to the average listener the average person that has never heard of this case so i don't know if we mentioned this but jennifer michaela and Haley all died that day so there were three victims and bill pettit was the sole survivor he had severe head injuries i don't know exactly what the extent of them were but he did make a full recovery and he now um thank goodness has a, a family he he remarried and and they had a son yeah, so he kind of needed to, he, I think, had to find a way to move on with his life. I can't even imagine the loss and how, how to live with that. I think that he sort of needed to do what he did. I know that he, I think he might still be involved in local politics. He was a huge champion for both of the perpetrators to get the death penalty, which they did. But um, shortly after that in Connecticut, the death penalty was reversed. So then everybody got life. And since then, the two have been moved out of state, right? I believe they're in Pennsylvania now. So I think that's probably just better for Bill Pettit. Just there's far as hell away from him. So why would inmates be moved to a different state? Um, I think that there can be a variety of reasons. But the fact that both of them were moved at the same time is quite interesting. I think that I think that Connecticut, I guess, was just done with them at that point. You know, they weren't going to be executed anymore. I think it's just like, okay, let's like move on. Let's heal from this. I don't know. Why do you think? I have no idea. That's why I asked. I thought maybe you might know. What do you think about my um, assessment there? I don't know. I mean, it's obviously just speculation. I thought you might actually know. No, I don't know. But that that did happen. Yes. So do you want to talk a little bit about the offenders? Yes. And sort of what makes someone capable of such disgusting atrocities these two are you know like we said they met in prison so they both were criminals but they're quite different and the level the dynamic is kind of interesting to unpack a little bit so first we'll talk about the younger one the the pedophile joshua komisarjewski so he had a difficult childhood he was adopted as an infant and was sexually abused at the hands of a teenage boy that the family had adopted when he was four until he was six. It was kind of a messed up upbringing. Like it was a a nice like, I guess they had money, the family, but they were involved in this really um, intense religion where they did like spells on people or something. They like spoke in tongues and they thought people were possessed. And I think it was kind of traumatizing to grow up that way. But along with all the foster kids, one of which, at least one of which, ended up sexually abusing Joshua. When you need clinical help, you know, I, I think 
religions, cultures like that refuse it. So, you know, that one specifically, he needed counseling and therapy after such trauma, but he was given religious faith healing instead. And it only really made him feel more alone and more dejected. So only a few years later, he would begin committing crimes himself. He committed grand theft auto, and he also began sexually abusing a younger foster sister. Um, This is when he's 12 years old. At 14, he burned down a gas station and basically became a career criminal, very sophisticated. uh, He was intelligent. Yep. uh, Well, to an extent. He was prepared a lot. He had night vision goggles. He thought about it. I think he was... It was like a, it was a very important aspect of his life. He he used it as like a craft, his skills of sneaking into people's homes and stealing. At the time of the crime, he had a uh, girlfriend and a young daughter. Yes. And the girlfriend was much younger than him and actually had the appearance of looking even younger than her actual age. Yeah. she. You can see like her high school graduation photo that he's posing her, posing with her in. And she looks like about 13 or 14. And he's just like the creepy dude that's girlfriend just graduated high school. Even though he was probably like in his mid-20s at the time. She was, but still. She was interviewed for a documentary and she, you know, is talking about the aftermath. And she starts to cry when she's saying this. She said that she talked about it, talked to him after his arrest. And she asked him if he raped the girl, if that was true. And he denied it to her. Even though he did acknowledge um, sexual assault to, uh, with uh, investigators still he, downplayed though yes yes he did acknowledge it to an extent yeah forensic evidence contradicts what he said that he did it, it was much more severe than what he fessed up to which is typical so this girlfriend said that she thought that maybe he was motivated to do so because she had recently disclosed to him that she was raped as a child and she thought immediately that was the first thing that came into her head when, why when she heard that he had raped a young girl the first thing in her head was that she had just told him that she was raped as a young girl so was it did it become like a like a sick fantasy that's, or that's what she thought and i mean I, that's oh my god i mean i think for people listening it sounds like wild speculation but think about she knew this guy pretty well she probably has more reasons to think that so it's just a very disturbing situation I'm, i really hope that she's moved forward i think, and, I think she has oh, yeah god. i think she's like married now and stuff moved out of the state so Stephen Hayes the other offender he was a whole different story yeah so obviously much older than Joshua he also he was trouble growing up like according to his brothers he was very very violent like forcing like one of their hands on a burning stove like holding guns to their heads like very just I think always very angry and hard to manage the mom enabled bad behavior she never taught her sons to take responsibility for their actions and apparently he was also sexually molested um according to his lawyer yeah when he was 10 years old by a babysitter that's the allegation he abused substances throughout his childhood and by his adulthood he was full-on addicted to crack cocaine he exhibited violent behaviors through his childhood and adolescence he actually the level of violence was kind of appalling to me like i said before he kind of tortured his two brothers and i remember watching a documentary where they actually spoke out about him basically like i wish that i wish that he was dead like somebody should literally just kill him like that's how much they hate him yeah he, you know he treated them really horribly like a sadistic captor mm-hmm. uh, you know holding them at gunpoint forcing them to sit on a stove he was really unable to lead a normal life have normal relationships maintain a job he 
got arrested for a number of things in his adult life, including smoking crack cocaine with a prostitute and unlawful possession of firearms. And I think that his mother kind of enabled him. Like, I think he always had like a place to stay with her and she kind of was in denial about a lot of stuff. So that's just another aspect of who he is. He's kind of taking advantage of his poor elderly mother and like sleeping on her couch while he's living this kind of lifestyle. Yeah, there are dynamics like that where the parent will almost allow themselves to be taken advantage of by their addict child because they just can't face the reality and really just cut them off and take a stand. Sad. Very much so. So, you know, these two people both demonstrated psychopathic tendencies and I think together it was a perfect storm yeah it was sort of a perfect pairing I think that Stephen Hayes is very cold and has well neither of them have any empathy but I feel like that Stephen Hayes sort of won't stop at much and Joshua Komisarjevsky is a leader he's the one that he's very cool and collected and confident you know so he's the one I feel that allowed Stephen to sort of come out of his shell like this. Neither would have probably done a crime to this extent on their own. I agree. Yeah, Joshua had always committed home invasions where the homeowners were asleep. This was, I think, a bit of an outlier where he specifically, you know, wanted them to be awake and had a plan to harm a child in the house. Yeah, it the aggravated factors just really accelerated at a at a rate that was kind of unheard of. But not really, because there's another case that we're going to talk about where things segue, yep. transition. Where things escalated in a way that were not anticipated and were so callous and shocking that it became a best selling book. So this case is similar to the Pettit Cheshire murders? Yes, in a lot of ways in the uh, offenders and their characteristics and just the crime itself the crime itself so this happened in kansas back in 1959 the offenders in this case were named perry smith and richard hickok they murdered the clutter family in holcomb and the story of the case was chronicled by truman capote in the novel in cold blood I guess it's not a novel, is it? It's, um, he interviewed... It's creative nonfiction. Yeah, he kind of got close with Perry Smith, I believe. I kind of, I saw, I read the book and I saw the movie and I kind of felt like he may have had a bit of a, like, sick crush on him. <laughs> Always trying to change men. <laughs> it, it doesn't work. Like, I, I think this man was very charismatic, right? I think that he was a charmer like many of these callous offenders can be. They can kind of put on the charm when it's convenient for them. Well, I would say that if we were to talk about counterparts between these cases, I would say that this guy was, you know, the more charismatic, calculating one out of their pairing. Yes. So he had a difficult upbringing himself. He Perry Smith. Yes. Okay. He went through a lot of orphanages. His own father was very violent and I think had attempted to kill him. He... Once he was out of the system, he became involved in gang activity. His father later committed suicide, and so did two of his siblings. So there was this genetic... I mean, we don't know exactly why they all committed suicide, but it does imply a genetic hereditary mental illness. 
Yeah, absolutely. And not only does he have that gene possibly and have those same demons of those ideations, but all of those deaths probably changed him. Or I don't know, maybe he didn't have any emotions even then. When Perry enlisted in the Korean War, he was caught many times initiating physical fights between, you know, fellow soldiers, Korean soldiers and Korean civilians. So he kind of seems like the type that maybe went to war to be like a stone cold killer. Like he want that's what he wanted out of the war, not to like fight for his country, but to be able to like fight and be angry and to kill people. So did he get kicked out for this? I don't think he was kicked out. So he that behavior, I guess, was accepted and that taught him something. <laughs> right. But I mean, after he returned from the war, he had several felony burglary convictions and actually escaped from prison and was a fugitive. So kind of interesting. Yeah. So he must be smart, even though prison was probably way easier to break out of back then. Yes. I don't know if he would have been able to do it now. Yeah, but it is what it is. I think that I think that made him quite cunning and people like I guess in the prison environment, like respected him. It was like props. So he met Richard Hickok in prison, who was another interesting character. He was 28 years old at the time of the murders. When he was a teenager, he suffered a traumatic brain injury from a car accident and it disfigured his face. And, you know, we're thinking about pathways to such violent crime and i'm thinking about you know a a brain injury that disfigured your face it probably was on his frontal lobe Mm -hmm. so what do we know about the frontal lobe and how damage might change the way you act it changes it tremendously from my understanding it keeps developing on until you're about 25 and it's responsible for behavior judgment personality impulsivity i think that i can't think of any more functions did i get it all it sounds about right it's awesome it's, it's really isn't it like the kind of like executive functioning area is also helping you foresee consequences to your actions yes and that's why you know adolescents who don't have that part of their brain fully developed are more likely to do stupid shit because they don't see the consequences they don't think it through so he was known to be very outgoing deceptively charismatic and he was a confidence artist yes so he tricked people yes and was good at it and he felt that he was above the working man but for for no reason a lot of yeah people are like yeah work stupid but they don't work and they probably are taking advantage of somebody that does work well they if they're robbing someone they're definitely taking advantage of someone that works so uh, let me guess this guy's also a thief (laughs) yes okay yes so he thinks yeah so for whatever reason he thinks he's better than everyone and above honest work and that's how he survives both of these guys are career criminals so what did they do together so they had heard tall tales in prison about a man in holcomb uh, kansas who kept large sums of cash in his home so this was herb clutter the clutter family so this is who they decided to target together once they were out the goal was to just make off with the cash and leave no witnesses but that's not what happened it's crazy that to me that they took this kind of risk on word of mouth. Like it's it's a game of telephone. They really had no way of knowing that this house really had money. It was just something that somebody told them. You know, they had no proof. And still they went on this journey to do this. I mean, maybe that maybe the lack of um the lack of ability to foresee consequences might yeah. play into that. You know, 
doing something so risky based off of a rumor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not not very well thought out. But they had this fantasy to make off with their fortune and go to Mexico. And um, I guess Hickok was impressed by Smith because Smith would brag about murdering in cold blood. So he felt that he was a suitable partner in crime. It's interesting, you know, what these people look for mm-hmm. in their person. I think in the Cheshire case, I think Joshua saw in Stephen someone that was callous and desperate enough to go through with this and easily manipulated correct and with this case he was really looking for that callousness as well i don't know about the um the malleability factor but definitely no, the callousness. I, think, I think that perry smith from what i understand kind of held his own a little bit like i kind of feel like that um stephen hayes was more dependent on joshua's cues like, I, I do feel like that they had disagreements, the two of them. Am I wrong about that? No, they did. Yeah. But in the end, you know, they were in it together. Yes. So the target, like we said, was the Clutter family. Uh, Herb Clutter, the patriarch, was a successful farm owner. He was a religious man, a devout Methodist. His wife, Bonnie, suffered from severe depression and wasn't very high functioning. But, you know, the two were, were married for a long time and they were... Uh, a cohesive family unit with two children. Nancy was 16 and Kenyon was 15. They were both well-adjusted and involved high school students. They were a well-regarded family. So on November 15, 1959, Perry Smith and Richard Hickok entered their home through an unlocked door in the early morning hours. They cut all the telephone cords so they wouldn't be able to call for help and they bound and gagged each member of the family Similar to their Cheshire, Connecticut counterparts, they ransacked the entire house while the family was tied up and they found absolutely nothing, which proved the jailhouse legend false. So once they don't have any cash to take or any other valuables that they can sell, things kind of went out of control? Correct. Now they had nothing except for witnesses, so they decide they're going to kill them all. Each victim was shot point blank in the head extra aggression was shown towards herb clutter who was additionally um his throat was slashed from ear to ear did they determine which of the two perpetrators did what or was it just sort of they had to guess or based off of their confessions i I, i'm not exactly sure the answer to that one i think that perry may have slit the throat there was also some demonstration of maybe what could be considered compassion as the 15 year old boy had pillows under his head you know he's he's tied up and you know shot in the head but it it looks like efforts were made to make sure that the boy was comfortable and that's what joshua komosarjevsky did actually i don't know if we mentioned this but when he put william pettit beaten to a pulp tied up in the basement he like got towels to like you know stop the bleeding of his head and i think he maybe even got pillows to keep him comfortable and it just makes no sense to me like it's like, why are you acting like you care about him? It's just like a, a classic manipulator. It's like, I did this to you, but here, they're there. But maybe that's in their own way. It's like, see, I'm not so bad. It's yeah. almost like a way to make them more compliant mm-hmm. uh, rather than them being nice in any way. It's it's to, I mean, when, when you hear about people that were held captive, they describe that sometimes their captor will show them kindness. Yes. And it like shocks them and catches them off guard a little bit. Yes. He also, I think, offered, this is what he says to the police, he says that he offered the girls water and food and let the mom 
you know, talked to the daughters before they took her to the bank. I, I, who knows if any of that's true, but it's just kind of but interesting. captors can show or claim to show some sort of sympathy sometimes, and they'll try to convey that. In the face of, of brutality. Yeah. So they actually got away, uh, the Kansas killers. Herb, I'm sorry, not Herb. Um, Hickok and Smith made off to Mexico for a few months, but they returned to the United States because, you know, they didn't have any money to support their lifestyle. The Yeah, they ran away without the money. <laughs> yeah, so the fantasy was not like they had hoped. They returned and spent time in Vegas where they were eventually captured. And were they both sentenced to death? And yeah, they were both executed. I remember seeing that. So let's sort of talk about how these two crimes are alike and how they're different or rather sort of how the offenders are alike and different. I think the most striking similarity is the choice to have a partner to execute the crime with. And, you know, there's some research out there that um, choosing a partner in crime is reflective of how you're raised and how you view the world. Someone who's been living life outside of the norms since adolescence, someone who's living on the fringes, like all of these people were, might seek an ally and someone who's also lived outside of the standards and has been rejected by society. Yeah, they all, have like a different definition of what they find cool and impressive. Yeah, they find like an alternative pathway to success because they are, are not able to traditionally find success. That's not how they're wired. So they find an alternative way. You know, if, if I can't do it like them, I'll just do it differently. Mm-hmm. You know, they all had a lot of setbacks like abuse, gang affiliation, um, drug addiction throughout their childhood. So, you know, those setbacks can kind of make it so they struggle to function normally. Right. So another similarity, too, is that two of the perpetrators were both interested in children. Richard Hickok was a pedophile and so was Joshua Komosarvdesky. Now, there wasn't any evidence that Richard Hickok molested either child in the Clutter family but it kind of makes you wonder when, when you see that similarity it makes you wonder like how coincidental it really is I think yeah. for the Cheshire case it was a motivator I don't know if it was for the Clutter case it probably wasn't because I think it just happened to be like it, that there just happened to be a teenage girl there I think all the stories that they had heard in prison were specifically about the father right do you think that plays into this at all um I'm not sure. I don't know if there was any evidence that Richard did anything at that particular crime scene, but I do remember reading in Cold Blood that in in the commission of a crime, I think that he had to be like stopped from doing something to a girl. He had to be stopped? Yeah, like like he was going to like touch her or something and like whoever was with him, it might have actually even been Perry, like stopped him. Like well, that's uh, not what we're here. For. Yeah, like let's get out of here. Okay. So I th- Perry knew that knew this about him too so and i wonder if stephen hayes knew that about joshua he might have been it's possible. keep it a secret i it's, don't know it's as simple it could be as simple as that their partners just were not bothered by it Ugh, how could you not be i'm so bothered by it well these were callous sociopaths that yeah were, they, they just use people yeah and it's kind of interesting to discuss the groupthink factor in all of this too so both of these crimes did not go as planned and they both escalated in their own way and i think that the antisocial behavior that each criminal showed really reinforced their partner's um 
callous ways. So things just kind of get worse. They feed into each other almost. So, you know, one person is completely dehumanizing the victims. It reinforces what they already have the tendency to do and want and think. Mm -hmm. And then it can just progress and get worse and worse and worse until it's just unspeakable, like both of these crimes were. So outside of the groupthink, I think there's also a power dynamic at play with the partners. You know, in both cases, we can see that one person clearly had the idea and clearly had the sophistication and planning, and the other person was a little bit more unhinged, a little bit more impulsive. Right. So I think with the Cheshire murder that it was definitely Joshua's idea because he's the one that saw them in the grocery store. He's the one that followed them home. He was the one that brought the idea to Stephen. And then there's those texts where Stephen's kind of asking him permission to begin. Like, like, come on, like, let's get it going. And and Joshua was like, hold your horses. And then Stephen was like, but the horses want to get loose. LOL. It's like, dude, like, you're just like. He he was chomping at the bit, he said, to get started. Like, I don't know if it was just because he was anxious or if it was because he was excited or both. Right. He said he needed a margarita. Right. So, yeah, I it could be anxious, excited or both. While Joshua is calm. And he's calling the shots. He's saying, no, we're not starting yet. He's the one that's making all the choices. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that he sort of tried to pin it all on Stephen being the ringleader. But that's just what else would you expect from someone so manipulative? Right. They'll always blame the other. You know, when two people are telling a completely different story, obviously one of them is lying. But more likely, most both of them are lying and that there's some version of the truth in what they're both saying. And usually it's them spinning it to their favor. Yeah. And it's I can't you can't trust anything that they ever say. Right. And it's I mean, it's just when you read those texts and you see him saying like, LOL, it's I don't think that they had planned to kill that night. At least that's not what it seems like. It didn't seem like that's what they had talked there, about. There's no evidence that that was the original plan. Yeah, the original plan just seems it was to be bad enough. The original plan was a home invasion. But it was they had planned to tie up a family, like to tie each person to their beds. Like that's, that's way more serious than what he normally did. Right. Than just walking in to unsuspecting sleeping people that don't know until they wake up the next morning that they've been robbed. Like they both of these things are like my worst nightmare like i think that growing up like my fear literally was somebody fucking breaking into the house and yeah. like holding people ho- holding us hostage being, or like being completely helpless yeah. yeah it's it's a it's a horrific terrifying thing and I, I i always had anxiety well we were little kids when this happened um well not yeah. li- not little little we were probably like 12 i think that michaela was only two years younger than us which is weird to think about because she was 11 yeah. When she, so we were like 12 or 13. Yeah. And she'll be 11 forever. It's just a. I didn't even know about this actual particular case at the time. I found about I think that our mom probably purposefully like kept that for me because I think she knew that that was a pervasive fear. And it's truly terrifying. It's the kind of thing that I think most people it's like their biggest fear. Yeah. And, and and these people are, you know, joking about it, saying LOL. And like drinking beers when they're there and having a grand old time. Yeah. And then, you know, Smith and Hickok go and partied up in mexico and las vegas after it's just it's it's unreal um all of these guys really lacked empathy and compassion and showed an unthinkable level of callousness you know they were all exposed to abuse they all demonstrated signs of conduct disorder as children they were prone to committing criminal acts they were aggressive all of them were sociopaths all of them had antisocial personality disorder but there were some special social dynamics at play with um, groupthink and with the partners and with power that is just 
fascinating to discuss but you know while it's fascinating to discuss what it resulted in was two pairs of men to commit crimes of unspeakable depravity nearly 50 years apart <laughs>